0: Hello and thank you so much for tuning into the Education Burrito, a podcast that unwraps the everyday challenges in learning and teaching in education, exploring the ins and outs and highs and lows of different pedagogy approaches, enhancing student engagement amongst everything in education. My name is QSUM and each episode I'll be joined by special guests as we unwrap the Education Burrito. excited to be joined in this episode by someone who is a practitioner. A chartered psychologist. Someone who is quite, well, very engaged in doing outreach stuff, inspiring secondary school pupils to engage with psychology, coordinating the site for schools. They are also a founding member and co-chair of the university's Black and Minority Ethnic Network, representing the interests and aspirations of ethnic minority staff at university to drive race equality. They also co-lead the Human Library Project. But I've got to say, they are the champion in voicing out our equality and diversity in the field. What really touched me was attending the tour a year ago, i say. That left me really inspired in a research topic that they were sharing about. And it motivates me to invite them for a chat on the work that they do in today's episode. And hopefully for our listeners, you will too be inspired by what an incredible person they are. Can you guess who my special guest is? The wonderful Dr. Deborah husbands, Deborah. Welcome to the podcast.
1: Thank you for having me too. Thank you.
0: That's brilliant. Um, so, let maybe what one interesting thing have you done recently?
1: Oh, no, that's a really interesting question on its own. <laughs> so, what have I done recently? I think one of the most recent things I've done actually is co-written, literally a hot off the press, uh, providing it gets accepted. Co-written an article for um, Wankehe, so that's W A N. K-H-E. And uh, it's basically the newsletter, isn't it, for higher education. Uh, And what we've really focused on in this article, and this has been written with the the other co-chair for the BME staff network, which is Professor Dibesh Anand, who's the head of the School of Social Sciences. He's also very much involved on the international field in terms of politics and international relations. But we've both kind of come together and written an article that really situates our experience within the context of allyship, and how important that is, not just between the two of us, but in terms of our wider interaction with colleagues in the network, and the fact that the network is not just made up of people who identify as being BAME, an acronym that I completely despise, I'll say that right now, but it's one that we're stuck with, But we also have a lot of white allies in the network as well. And that's been particularly inspiring, plus the fact that we work in a cross-sectional sense or intersectional sense with the Women of Westminster Networks, which is all all those people that identify as women as female, and as well as with the LGBTQI Network as well. So it's a really diverse set of people with a shared vision heading in the same direction. So that's really, really encouraging. And uh, yes, so hot off the press for us is, is an article that we've literally just drafted where we're going to kind of share something of that journey.
0: Oh wow, that's so brilliant to hear! I mean, I kind of know about Wonky as well, so I get the the weekly newsletter they have. But I'll certainly keep my eyes out, and I'm sure everyone will um, with this new article you've got coming out. It's all very exciting, Deborah, isn't it?
1: <laughs> it is. It is. It really is. I mean, and of course, you know, we're we're in a really strange time. I hear people kind of terming it the new normal, the non-normal, and the, the paranormal, all sorts of things. But it's an opportunity for us really to think about what we do. I was in a, a Zoom. Zoom meeting yesterday and one of the things that we were doing was reflect on our experience over this whole kind of COVID reality and just kind of thinking about the importance of of moving from a place of perhaps feeling that one is the victim of this situation and unfortunately some people have been the victims of, of in really terrible ways and we've got to recognize that but how we move from a place of being the victim to a place of being a survivor to the place of being a thriver so you know there's a whole kind of continuum step change as you move from one place to the other and I think the heart of all of that is two things really it's the ability to be reflective so just really thinking about how one can grow how one can change how one accepts the things that they can't change and also about you know recognizing that there is a case for resilience in all of this. So you know, just having the confidence to just keep going and trying new things. I've heard of so many people that have taken up lots of hobbies. I think that the most uh, significant COVID hobby has been baking. I've just been hearing about people baking, baking, baking. You know? I just I don't understand what that's about. And I mean, you know, and then on the flip side, there's these all these articles coming about coming out about the nation's obesity (laughs) so you kind of see there's a bit of a correlation going on there but it's just the fact that people are now doing things that they never did before they're trying new things and I think this is really it's on the back of something really sad Uh Um, but it's also an exciting time for us to see the evolution of society into something else something more creative something more meaningful and something much more caring as well some huge demonstrations of caring this caring and compassionate ethic that we haven't seen before so yeah some good things there
0: no that's brilliant to hear i think you've really touched upon the work that you do so maybe we'll get stuck right in so if we first of all talk about the human library and then the work that you do with students so i mean take the um the human library such a powerful yet simple initiative Celebrating the differences and connecting communities, encouraging a better understanding of people coming from different backgrounds and culture. And I think from what I've seen so far, it's such a bring that you're bringing both staff and students together this. So how did you first get involved with this work then and how did it kind of evolve over the years?
1: OK, so um, a really good question. And it's something that I often kind of sit and reflect on as well, you know, how did we get to this place? And I have to give credit to Dr. Catherine Waddington for this, really. Not not in terms of the fact that she started the Human Library, because that has been in existence since 1993 and was started in Copenhagen. But just the fact that she brought it to my attention... She was the then head of the um, Department of School of Psychology, it was called then. And we were sort of thinking about different ways of engaging with people and trying to be really kind of creative about how we do that. And she mentioned an interaction that she had with someone called Dean Fathers, who's also done a lot of work for the NHS and, and worked in prisons and so on. And how, you know, they've been using the human library as a vehicle for getting people to connect with each other in much more meaningful ways. So, the idea of, say, prison warders having these really interesting conversations with sort of the prison inmates is a, a, just a really interesting idea. And we thought about that in the context of Westminster, particularly because we felt that there were these marginalized groups of students, uh, student communities and sometimes you know people who didn't even feel they belonged to any kind of community, all existing in the same space on university campuses but with no real way of connecting. And this fed nicely into my own research which was strongly focused on the experiences of black female students in psychology which there's a little bit of a backstory to how I got to that point. But I was, I was kind of recognising all of the, the important reasons for us to do this kind of work, using the human library as a vehicle, mm-hmm. recognising that, you know, these things are tied into students' ability to progress, to be successful, perhaps, you know, in recognition of the fact that we have an attainment gap and some of the factors that feed into the creation of attainment gap And how students can feel very disconnected from their environments, have a lack of engagement. And a lot of it is not necessarily their fault. But, you know, because of the way uh, universities are constructed and we at this point have to recognise that there is a, a big kind of factor for institutional racism in universities. It becomes incumbent on us to think about ways that we can break down some of the barriers that have been created, albeit perhaps, you know, as a result of things that have happened long before any of us came into the university sector. But also recognising that there was a time when universities were very privileged spaces where people that look like me, for example, as a black Caribbean woman, wouldn't necessarily have been able to access so as much as, you know, there's been a big emphasis in the sector on widening participation, and that has been successful in that more and more people from multiple kinds of backgrounds are coming into university, less thought was given to how we were going to ensure that people had the opportunity to progress in equitable ways. It kind of reminds me of the Brown, I think it's the, the Brown, ver versus brown the 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 landmark case in the us on segregation and how you know as a result of that case in the 1950s segregation was ruled as unlawful and and that was fine in that you know the law was there and people realized that this was something that they couldn't necessarily do and certainly shouldn't be getting away with. But what was missing in all of this, that there there was no prescription, there was no strategy, there was no kind of method paper, if you like, for how they then should go about desegregating schools. And so, as a consequence, segregation continued for quite a long time after that, that landmark case. I think it was Brown versus the Board of Education. So we have a similar situation with universities in that access has been widened, but less thought has been given to the fact that there's a a history in higher education that means that, you know, whilst people can get their foot now into the door, they won't necessarily be able to, you know, sort of progress through the halls of academia. And no more so do we see this than in the representation of BAME staff uh, in higher education where you know it's well known that there's this kind of ivory tower phenomenon where people of particular ethnicities are not represented in senior positions, they're less involved in strategic decision making, their voices are less heard in these sort of high profile places, Mm -hmm. and so we get a sense that there's not just the sense but there's a the statistics show us that there's a lot more work that needs to be done to diversify higher education and so going back to the human library this was a key kind of opportunity to not so much redress the imbalance because you know the, the work is far bigger than something that the human library can do but to give staff and students the opportunity of hearing each other's stories in a sort of safe setting as a way of breaking down some of the misconceptions that people have about You know, people that are students of particular ethnicities uh, or staff uh, of particular ethnicities. And it transcends ethnicity. You know, the the nature of the human library is that it taps into all of the social characteristics that we recognize under the Equality Act and, and everything else that's kind of outside of that as well. But it gives people the opportunity to come into this space. It's like a melting pot space of humanity, of diverse humanity. And they can have these really short, focused conversations that really drill into experiences of bias and stigma, discrimination, oppression, uh, prejudice. All of the things that perhaps contribute to making life a little bit more difficult for some people than it ought to be.
0: No, that's brilliant, Deborah. And I think the work that you've done in the human library is making it's made an impact to not just a group of students, but to the whole community at Westminster. And I think you've touch on the other aspects that you're that you're involved with. So if we park the human library to one side for now, um and there's something I really want to ask you about, is the work that you do in exploring students' experience and that sense of belonging and engagement, particularly those from the minority and yeah, do you want to just tell us a bit about the work that you do there and how it's kind of impacted the wider community?
1: Sure. Um, and I think really this is, a, this is a journey that I've been on. Um, and, and it's best to kind of position all of that in that journey. So I was an undergraduate student at Westminster. I came in as a mature student um, in 2006 to study psychology. And uh, as a first-generation student with no real understanding of what to expect in, in, in higher education, you can imagine it was a bit of a what, what has been referred to by some students as a culture shock. Uh, there's a whole language in, in academia that if you have not been exposed to that, either because you are what's been referred to as a legacy student, so your parents um, went through higher education, or you have some kind of privilege that allows you to understand that landscape, it can be a really scary place. For me, I found that over the three years, I spent a lot of the time trying to kind of navigate that space, understand the requirements from me as a student, I I refer to something in in other conversations as the the kind of accessing the hidden curriculum. And this is a curriculum that is, it's not the curriculum that you see, it's not overt in that sense. Uh, It's much more kind of nuanced, and it's much more sophisticated. And it is that kind of... uh, knowledge head knowledge if you like that allows you to uh, to understand how to craft an argument in a particular way you know if you're writing an essay you know what does it really mean you know you you, if if someone says to you you know where's the argument in your essay you you automatically think of two voices having you know some kind of robust exchange but it's much more sophisticated than that and it requires a higher level of criticality to be able to engage with the literature in a way that you're actually constructing something that is solid and recognised by the academic community as an argument in your writing so all of that is it's kind of a mysterious thing if you don't understand or have no kind of prior knowledge of what what that is all about and I at the end of my my experience as a student I was asked to to stay on as part-time visiting lecturer perhaps because I was quite a mature student and it was assumed that I might have that level of authority that one needs in the classroom and it was you know it was really interesting because I actually uh, on my last day of university I came in to say goodbye to my personal tutor And it ended up being a revolving door for me because I ended up coming right back in as a part time visiting lecturer. And that's fine. But uh, I again, I still felt that, you know, there was a lot that I didn't understand about higher education. But what I was seeing was there were students that looked like me, uh, similar to me, that seemed to be having the similar struggles that I had. And I was given the opportunity, a a few years into this journey of being a part-time visiting lecturer, um, taking a postgraduate certificate in higher education, and that was over a two-year. And one of the things that we were asked to do as a a portfolio of work was to focus in on a specific context of student diversity. Um, and a lot of my cohort at that time sort of looked at things like various forms of learning difficulty and so on. And I decided that this was going to be a prime opportunity for me to look at the experiences of minoritized students as this specific context of diversity. And I got I gathered together a small group of black female students in psychology. I wanted to kind of stay close to a discipline that I understood and asked them to tell me about their story. And I was unprepared for the stories that these students told me. There were stories of being, of feeling invisible, contrasted with feeling hyper-visible, stories of racism, stories of being excluded and ostracised. And what was most compelling, I think, for all of this for me, was the fact that out of all of the students that I spoke to in this focus group, just one student managed to complete her degree so you know the reflection there for me was that something is seriously wrong here something is happening and you know I've, I've asked these students as a small focus group to tell me about their experiences but literally I haven't even scratched the tip of this iceberg and I need to find a way of getting in deeper hence taking the decision then to do this as my PhD. So with the the, the PhD, um, I did it part time. So over seven years, which is quite a long time to be doing your PhD, to be honest.
0: We've done it now, so it's completely. It's
1: done. <laughs> it's done. But I had the opportunity of really getting into these stories and really understanding what it meant for these students. And you know, oftentimes there's a big focus, particularly from the attainment gap, on cultural deficits. You know, so the focus is on the fact that the student is maybe they are first generation, maybe they do come from a tr- troubled neighborhood or what have you or maybe they've had free school meals for most of their lives and all of these negative things. But there was, there's less of an emphasis on what it is that's making these students successful. So what's the counter narrative? What is it that's allowing some students to obviously we understand not do so well contributing to an attainment gap, but what is it that's making some students do very well from these marginalized groups? And so the PhD allowed me to really get into these stories and to realize that, you know, one of the challenges that we have is when we look at things through this homogenized lens of BME or BAME, because it leads to these kind of reductionist views about what black students are like or what Asian students are like. And there is no um, typology, if you like, for what any of these students are like, because each of them comes in with their own capital. Each of them comes in with their own kind of lived and living experience, which shapes how they're going to view education going forward. But what it it really points to is the importance of the university diversifying itself and decolonizing itself from a history of colonized practices. So one of the things these students would often say to me is that they want to talk about their lives, their their lived experiences. They want to kind of bring in the race angle in in some of the discussions that they've had in seminar groups. And, you know, maybe wanting to kind of point things out in lectures where they feel that, you know, the perception of race has either been skewed or it's being ignored as a significant factor. And yet they felt silenced in those, in those environments. They felt unable to talk about it. And it, it sort of speaks to the fact that we've got some serious issues in higher education where there is an emphasis on, you know, kind of the mainstream, normalised ways of thinking and of teaching and of doing pedagogy. You know, all of these things are kind of the given, but doing things on the edge getting out onto the margins is somehow frowned upon. But that's actually where you really get the energy coming back into teaching. And it's certainly something I've tried to do in my own practice where, um, you know, when I'm talking to students, I really try to get them to focus in on bringing their capital into the classroom. I emphasize the importance of storytelling in a, in a kind of critical race, theoretical tradition where stories are really the heartbeat of you know of what goes on for an individual psychology as we know is the study of the self so it's a study of yes the brain the mind behavior but also how people think how people feel how they perceive their world their social world and we go down we look at this from uh, go right down drill right down into an individual level so why shouldn't we then be focusing in more on the stories that those individuals are telling about their experiences and using that to inform research going forward so we know as well in in uh, and i think it's probably not just psychology it's probably right across many disciplinary subjects for a very long time um, the normative um, idea of a participant was the white american male and it's on the basis of that 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 particular group that so many seminal ideas about how human beings behave have been formed, which is so inappropriate. It's so very, very wrong. And so for me, there is an importance of bringing in international scholarship, bringing in you know international writers, and and just really kind of broadening the even our reading lists, broadening the way we think about things, bringing in theories. You know, I, I used in my own PhD some references to black negrescence theory, um, which is a, a theory that kind of focuses on, on the kind of politicized construction of blackness and how people move from a place of sort of indifference to a place of activism. So all of these kinds of theories that have informed our understanding of how people who have been positioned as marginalized in society are the kinds of theories that we need to now be bringing into our teaching to sort of enable students to understand for a start where positions of radicalization begin so why is it that people have this sort of normative lens through which they see everything and recognizing that you know the whole idea of indigenous populations has been written out of narratives written out of research written out of textbooks and so this is our opportunity to bring all of that back in especially with this fresh focus on diversifying and decolonizing the curriculum and decolonizing and diversifying the university.
0: Wow what's a story you've you shared there Deborah and I think for myself coming from a from a Chinese background I understand what you meant when you kind of growing up there's no one who's kind of around you with the same sort of background so I kind of kind of was feeling that and kind of with that journey when you were speaking there and I just was, was just reflecting on my own experience as well and I think yes even though I made it through my made it through the school years you know and now my degree and now my research at the moment I think it's very true that sometimes you you just don't know how to say it or how to how to share it but I think the work that you've done and you are doing at the moment is is so inspiring. I think it's given that opportunity for students and, and staff, I, I mean, for everyone just to be open and just to share their story. And I think sharing stories, the most powerful tool that we can have, because if we don't share our stories, then how will people know? Right. And yeah, I'm just really, Yeah, we're inspired by a story that's all
1: Um, thank you thank you and you know if we if we look at some of the literature that's out there now i think there's such a big emphasis on the power of storytelling you know in terms of you know some of the literature that's really been focused on anti-racism and really bringing black history for example to the fore um, and i could just name a couple of, of things like natives by akala um, we've got Girl, Woman, Other by um, Bernadine Evaristo and so on. There's so many good books out there, fiction and non-fiction, but they're all kind of pushing back now to this tradition of storytelling as being the most important way of really getting into the human psyche. And once we recognise that and value that, I think that's when we're going to start to understand and deconstruct issue or the pandemic of racism that we're living through now. We'll start to deconstruct that. And I think, you know, it, it might not seem scientific. And I think that's probably one of the pushbacks that we get, you know, you know, if it, where is the science in all of this? Particularly, you know, when we, we, we're thinking about things from the university perspective. But science is, is a multitude of things. And even science has its own story, you know. So to erase the story out of science, sort of, you know, it, it renders science as something that is sterile and, and almost artificial. So bringing those things back into science actually quickens it, it brings it back to life, it makes it much more meaningful, it widens the sphere of engagement, and it allows people to become creative with science and move it on, which is really what, you know, as far as I'm concerned, universities are there for. It's not just a a kind of container for knowledge, but it's the creator of knowledge, and it's the way to to kind of be the disseminator of knowledge.
0: That's that's brilliant. I think you kind of really touched there as to how we can, well, I mean, what we can do in the future as well. But if we are looking ahead to the future, say, how do you think your work that you've done or are doing will evolve in the higher education changes? You know, there's a lot of changes and at the moment with everything going online and And uncertainty how do you think your work will evolve and still cater for those for those communities
1: um i think you know in in terms of what i'm doing now i don't necessarily see that there's going to be a major change and the reason i say that is because even over the the seven years that i've did the phd there's so much in there that has not fully been explored that to sort of park all of that and say, right, you know, now I'm into a new vein, now we're going online, now I need, need to do things differently, is actually to do a, a disservice to all of that knowledge that's been acquired um, over the years. So I actually think that the work that we're doing now is just as important as the work that we're going to be needing to do in the future. And, you know, the whole notion of of doing things online, borne out now, obviously, by the response to um, covid uh, pandemic has really just kind of brought to the highlights some of the disparities that uh, we've been talking about for a very long time but that people felt you know were perhaps either manufactured or you know was the kind of the working of an overly creative mind or somebody that was maybe playing a race card somewhere or what have you but you know things like COVID have really shown us the differentials, you know, in terms of people's experiences. And we've seen that with students, you know, where students are now having to learn online, some of them without the use of a computer, you know, so, you know, they can't even go back to first base because, you know, it's showing up all of these economic disparities. We've got people that are experiencing health issues, and perhaps, you know, for a very long time, they've managed to keep those health issues, you know, kind of silenced almost. But COVID has brought those things into stark reality. So, we're recognizing the adjustments now that we're needing to make because of people's health requirements, things that people were probably talking about as well in some respects for a very long time, but people didn't take any notice of that. COVID brings it all to the fore. So, you know, it's really recognizing that we've got a long history with a lot of evidence that's shown that there are difficulties for lots of different people from for, from lots of different communities. Um, we're now in a space where, you know, we're having to do things slightly differently, but the stories haven't changed. The only thing that's changed is perhaps the medium in which we do things. So I don't necessarily see that anything that I'm doing now is going to become radically different because I feel from a from a personal perspective that I'm fortunate to have always... Viewed things through this altered lens, you know. I never. It was the world was never black and white for me. It was always this kind of mixture of things going on. And I guess a lot of that is based on my own personal lived experiences. But on reflection, the one thing that perhaps will change is that. uh, And and unfortunately, you know, we do have to refer to the death, the murder of George George Floyd as being one of the factors that have um, that has created much more awareness around this is that i think more people are beginning to believe those stories that we were telling sort of you know three four five seven ten years ago Um, so they're realizing that actually these weren't just you know people telling things because they wanted to be sensational or they wanted to be noticed this was the truth this was our truth Um, and it's still our truth and as we move into this kind of new zone, whatever it looks like for, for, for different people. It's a truth that we've got to now reckon with in this new place that we find ourselves. So it's now validating and accepting and doing something about that truth, which I think is what we might well now see is that there's going to be a whole kind of fresh energy, fresh branding of activism that we've perhaps not seen before where you know we're going to find people that are it's going to move but there's a lot of protests going on but it's probably going to become much more strategic now where people will use education as a way of protesting uh, against social ills they will use much more sort of strategic ways they they're understanding the way the government you know has behaved around all of this they're actually being a lot more analytical themselves about the things that they're seeing and as a, res- as a result of that I think they're going to be a lot more informed in their response to things like racism to you know COVID to whatever whatever else is round the corner for us. So I guess what we now have it's, it's a bit like we've moved from one period of enlightenment you know we had the period of enlightenment with Kant and, and all of those other philosophers talked about and bacon and so on um into a new kind of enlightenment so we have this new kind of movement a new kind of paradigm shift where people are now being much more strategic and becoming much more organized and most importantly it's crossing the divides of things like race it's not now you know about the fact that you don't look like me it's about the fact that i'm actually prepared through things like allyship and so on, to have a shared understanding of your experience and work with you to make that experience much more equitable. That's
0: brilliant. I think to round us off then, what would be your top one tip from Deborah? Say, if people want to get involved in this area of work, what would be your best tip to do so?
1: I think one of the, the, the most important things that people need to do is... It's actually subsumed in, I'll subsume it in one word, but it actually means doing a number of things, but it's to educate themselves most important thing that people can do that right now and it's a lot easier to do that now than it ever was especially because we now live in this kind of pseudo online world you know there's a lot of information out there at one's fingertips unfortunately not all of it is authentic Um, and of course you know you, you will also know yourself that one of the emphases is always for us to kind of sift out the authentic from the inauthentic when we're kind of doing our research But really, I think people need to make some concerted efforts to educate themselves. So that means, you know, really kind of getting a sense of what's going on politically, what's going on socially, what's going on in their kind of local environment. And the other thing that kind of leads into that is to listen more. Listen to what people are saying. Listen to their stories. Listen to their quote-unquote truths. Listen, because the process of listening will help people to understand how they can learn through, you know, education. You know, what is it that I need to now, having listened, pay attention to? What is it that I need to do, having listened, change within myself? What is it that I need to do, having listened, act on? So it's those two things kind of go hand in hand the importance of educating oneself through a process of listening.
0: Wow. What a, what a fantastic tip of listening and educating ourselves in this area. And thank you for that, Deborah, for sharing your story with us. So I think let's just end with this, um, quick firing round, shall I say, for our listeners and myself to get to know you a bit more. So these are, I've got a few, a list of uh, questions just to, um, should be short answers and should be easy for you, but we'll see how it goes. Are you ready for it? I'm ready. There's <laughs> <laughs> nothing to, uh, to be scared of. <laughs> um, so let's start off with then, if you are to pick one learning and or teaching platform or tool, what would it be?
1: Oh, Oh, that's a difficult one because, uh, of course, uh, most universities are using, uh, I think, that board slash collaborates and so on. But I think they all come with flaws, to be honest. And also, you know, going back to one of the things I said before as well, you know, one of the challenges for people can be the bandwidth that you have. You know, if you don't have a top range, you know, internet package all singing or dancing, no matter what platform you're using, it's going to be problematic for you. But I think if I were to choose of all the ones that I've been exposed to. Um, and and I, I suppose it's not necessarily a leaning, learning and teaching platform, but it can be used in that way. I, I would say Zoom is actually so good. Uh-huh. Yeah, it's just, you know, I've heard of people being Zoom bombs and, and what have you, and thankfully that's not happened to me yet. But um, it just seems like the interface is clearer. It's been around longer, I think, before uh, things like Collaborate uh, came on board. So people are a lot more familiar with it. They're using it in a range of contexts, and I think there's even now a Zoom education. So they might be fine-tuning it a little bit more to suit the education platforms that people uh, will want it for. So yeah, Zoom's get, Zoom gets the, um, the, the big tick from me at the moment.
0: That's brilliant. So three words to describe yourself as an educator.
1: Ooh so first i'd say passionate because to be honest if i didn't have passion i would have left this thing a long time ago so (laughs) when 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 it became too difficult to feel as if i wanted to continue passion rose up and, and kept me going so definitely passionate is one of them curious is the other one just kind of wanting to know what's next and what's more and why is this and and just all those questions and not always taking things for granted i mean i think one of the best things about um you know undertaking a phd is the place that it takes you to in terms of developing your own level of criticality where you don't now take things for granted what it does mean on on the downside is that you cannot watch Um, you cannot watch a programme on television, you know, even if it's a comedy, without analysing the characters and trying to work out why the plot is going in a particular direction and picking out all the flaws so entertainment factor's gone for me now as a result of that and everything is now a 3,000 word dissertation, but yeah, I think just being curious is a really important aspect of who I am and then the final thing the final word, I think resilience, resilience so it's a term that I've used before in in other talks and I think it really does speak for for me and it is a huge thing you know there's a lot of um, different things that are subsumed within resilience you know some of that is confidence some of that is you know perseverance and it's called all sorts of different things there's lots of antonyms for that um, but for me, it's just the, that, that thing that makes me get up and say, right, i am crack on with today. Um, and no matter what today brings, no matter what obstacles it brings, I'm going to keep going. I'm going to keep focused. Um, and I will do this. Whatever it is, I will do it.
0: Brilliant. So other than your phone... What would be the best, one best thing, actually, only one one best thing to carry around to show students and all colleagues in the corridors? Other
1: than my phone? Oh wow. Um, oh, it
0: should be easy. What just one thing? yeah, yeah. <laughs> that's
1: a really hard one actually that and, and i suppose what makes that more difficult is because you specify the context here you said students and colleagues what would be that one thing that i'd want well, to show do you you normally carry
0: when I, on campus <laughs> yeah, I, yeah.
1: you know it's probably the keys to the office <laughs> but actually having said that maybe it is that Maybe it is that. It's the keys to the office because you see, yes, thank you. <laughs> thank you. So what, what, what that actually is, what that is, the keys to the office. Number one, it shows that I have a place in academia. You know, one of the things I struggled with for a very, very long time is the feeling of unbelonging. But having a key to an office shows that I actually have my place in academia. So I suppose for, for colleagues, yes, that's that message. And for students, I think there's an aspirational message in there. Because what it suggests to students who may look like me is that you too can have a place in academia. So, you know, whether that is, yes, you know, it's a keys to an office or what have you. But I think what's wrapped up in that is that, you know, the keys are a kind of a, a symbolic re- representation of the possibility of belonging to a community. So yes, my keys.
0: Alas, <laughs> no, that's, we're looking for your keys there next time. <laughs> Make sure you always have a key <laughs> on you. Um, So next one, tea or coffee? Simple one. Coffee. And a Coffee all the way.
1: Yes. Uh, well, and it's not all the way, actually. I have to be really careful with that because I'm the person who, you know, if I drink a coffee at eight o'clock in the evening, at two o'clock, my eyes will pop open and I'll be just there raring to go. So coffee in the morning, <laughs> coffee in the morning. <laughs>
0: brilliant if you're a book what would your title be
1: all oh, right so i've already actually created my book title um oh, which this is should unsurprising be easy, yeah it's unsurprising because <laughs> this is one of the things we get people to do in the human library so my book title is the outsider within
0: ah oh, we definitely need another conversation to talk about that
1: i think so the outsider within
0: yeah invisibility or super strengths
1: super strengths now <laughs>
0: favorite music genre um
1: gospel music for me ah, yeah. yeah because I have a deeply spiritual side as well so gospel music takes me there
0: ah, that's brilliant I think it's a way for you to um to distress yourself right totally yeah totally your favorite learning and teaching hero
1: hmm. my favorite Dead or Alive. Wow,
0: that's open for you. (laughs) Okay. um,
1: Is the one? Actually, yes. Yes, there is one. Dr. Will Whitlock. And he was, he works I think still at the University of Westminster. And the reason I've chosen him is because he was the one that really introduced me to the idea of criticality. Uh, And through our conversations, he pushed me and pushed me and pushed me to get beneath the surface of my thinking. You know, we think in two ways. We do, we do our surface thinking, which is our kind of immediate reaction and response to the things that we see. And then we do our beneath the surface thinking, which is the unpacking thinking, where we start to really strip back, like the onion, the layers of our thoughts and get to the mm-hmm. soul of what it is we're we're all about
0: brilliant and one final question then and because our yeah. podcast is called the education burrito oh. what's your favorite oh, burrito filling?
1: yeah um or feelings i i think i'm a bit of an olive girl you know uh, i just yeah i'm not i'm not really a fan of meats and, oh. and stuff so I, I i prefer something that's a bit salty and that makes me kind of alive and awake so just the olive of any kind, any variety, stuffed with whatever you like. As long as it's an olive, I'm good to go. That's
0: brilliant. Well, I'm afraid that's all we have time for in today's episode. Um, And if our listeners want to find out more about the work that you do, Deborah, how can they do so?
1: Um, They can um, reach out to me on email. They can reach me on Twitter as well. So um, I like to comment every now and again on issues of race, gender, ethnicity, um, racialization, etc. So and I'm also on LinkedIn. so there are three different ways really to get hold of me.
0: That's brilliant. Thank you. And again, a big, massive thank you to you, Dr. Deborah Husbands, for sharing with us your the stories and the work that you truly do. And you really do inspire us. And yes, and for our listeners, um, I really do hope that this episode has inspired you. And if you do want to find out, do contact Deborah for more information as well.
1: Thank you very much, Coo, and Thank you to all those listening. And uh, it's been a pleasure to spend this afternoon with you. Thank you.
0: Thank you so much for your time and tuning into the Education Burrito. Make sure to hit the subscribe button on whichever platform you're listening on, and be sure to like it and share it on social media tagging us at the hashtag the Education Burrito. If you have enjoyed our chat today and fancy coming onto the show, no matter as a student or member of staff, do drop us a message as we unwrap learning and teaching in the Education Burrito.